it's a, a special interview, this for me, because it's not often that we get to meet people who have shaped us in terms of um, intellectual development, in terms of knowledge, in terms of providing ideas and insights that have been of enormous benefit. Um, so today is one such day because many, many years ago, I picked up a book called A Test of Time. Um, Test of Time is written by David Roll, my guest today, and it's subtitled The Bible from Myth to History. And this, the story it told was fantastically fascinating. And it falls into a, a, a pattern, a subject that we are covering a lot, I'm covering a lot these, in, in a series of interviews in UK call, which is things that everybody believes, everyone knows to be true. The establishment is completely convinced is true, but just isn't right. And these issues, these problems, they permeate all aspects of human endeavor. They permeate science. They permeate, in this case, archeology. span and until the errors can be flushed out, until they can be faced, and this is where the human, the human condition is, is not doing us any favours, because people who have built careers based on an error won't face the hard realities that there's been some, something has gone sadly wrong. Until these can be faced, the problems can't be sorted out. And until the problems are sorted out, progress can't be made. And the science, the investigation, it, it, it wallows. It doesn't move forward and opportunities are lost. So the people who will come along and will have the courage to face the hard truths, to say the unpopular things, they have to be greatly treasured. So, David, welcome. Welcome also. Yes, that's lovely to see you, David. Two Davids at the same time. I found Test of Time, as I say, to be a, a very important book in my intellectual development. I found it, I found it really first class. Um, I'd like to start with the core underlying error and how the underlying error that affects chronology and time and the, stu and the study of Egypt and the ancient world, how, that, how you discovered that error and what the error was and, and how it originated. Well, it goes back a long way, actually. It goes back to early days of Christianity, essentially, because um, in the Bible, we have the first chapter of Exodus talking about the Israelite slaves building a city called Ramses and another city called Pithom. But Ramses, of course, was always associated from the classical period with King Ramses II. So the automatic assumption has been for scholarship for hundreds of years now is that King Ramses was the guy who enslaved the Israelites and in the time of the Exodus. So the Exodus took place in the time of Ramesses II. Um, but the real problem with that is that the place where the Israelites were living in the land of Goshen had many names at different periods. And so there is an, an earlier um, archeological site there, which is much more likely to be the, the correct one. However, you know, we've accepted for donkey's years, and you see it in the Cecil B. DeMille movie and all the other movies, that it's Ramesses II who's the pharaoh of the Exodus. So that's our first anchor point that was made. Moses must be contemporary with Ramesses II. And then there's another biblical link which scholars latched onto when Champollion deciphered the, 
the hieroglyphs in 1822, he um, he then went to Egypt and, and discovered uh, a, an inscription by a pharaoh called Shoshenk at Karnak. And he knew his Bible pretty well. And he associated this Shoshenk with the campaign that was inscribed on the wall of the temple at Karnak with this pharaoh that's mentioned in the Bible, the first one to actually be given a name in the Bible called Shishak. And he was notorious for plundering the Temple of Solomon in year five of Solomon's son Rehoboam. So there was a link there made by the Egyptologists through Champollion between this pharaoh Shishak of the Bible and the Libyan pharaoh of the 22nd dynasty, Shoshenk I. And that was another key anchor point. And so chronology was constructed around these two biblical links. Egyptologists used the Bible to date the time of Rehoboam and also the time of Moses through, through the biblical text, through the biblical chronology, and they dated Egyptian dating systems to those biblical dates. And then they found out later on, when they started archaeologically digging in the Holy Land and in Egypt, there was no connection, no visible connection there. You couldn't make any, any relationship between Moses and the uh, and uh so what they did then is the whole thing is a, a foundational myth it was something that was into creation so they used the bible to date egyptian history and then they used egyptian history to dismiss the bible well yeah so this is an example of of horrendous circular circular reasoning that there is no logic in this position um having having as you say first established Egyptian chronology from the Bible and then dis and then undermine the Bible from Egyptian chronology. What is the basis of the Egyptian chronology at that point? The basis must be extremely uncertain, unsound. Um, but it was established. It was accepted. And I I'm assuming at this point not challenged. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, there are two, there's two schools of thought, really. You sort of have the evangelical community in America saying, well, the biblical date for the Exodus was 1446 BC. And of course, Ramesses II is normally dated 1279 BC, the beginning of his reign. And so they don't match, clearly. So what they, there's a little conjuring trick that went on where they divided the 480 years from, I think it's year three or four of King Solomon, back to the Exodus into periods of 40 years, which they call a generation, of course, much too long for a generation. And, and that was divisible by 12. So they then said, well, a, a generation is only actually about 22, 23 years. So what we'll do is we'll multiply the 12 generations of the 480 by 25. So the 40, and we get a much lower date for the Exodus around the time of Ramesses II. So they're constantly manipulating the data, the biblical data, to try and resolve this conundrum that Ramesses II is not dated when the biblical text says the Exodus was dated. How did you get involved in this, this whole controversy? controversy? What was your way into saying, well, actually, there's, there's, there's more to this. There's an error being made, and I, I have an idea as to what it might be. What was your, what was your route in? Well, I was um, interested in Egyptology when I was a kid, seven years old. You know, I went to Egypt for the first time at the age of nine. So I was immersed in Egyptology from a very early age. Uh, but then in the 1960s, um, a book came out by Professor Kenneth Kitchen, uh, a little blue book. It was very, very thick, very much detail in it about something called the Third Intermediate Period in Egypt, which is basically after the New Kingdom, after the great pharaohs of like Ramesses II, 
that fall of the 20th dynasty, then we get this period of five dynasties, which are very, very confusing, not taught really at, um, at, at universities. When I did my university degree in Egyptology, they sort of skipped over it because it's so complicated. Uh, it's dynasties where there's parallel lines of kings, different lines in different dynasties, all overlapping each other. And it's very difficult to reconstruct. Well, this blue book of Kenneth Kitchens sort of provided all the data in one single place where scholars like me and other young books could look at it and analyze it. And we looked at it and we found that his analysis, his reconstruction based on the evidence that he'd produced in that book didn't work. There were so many issues in there. And even today, a lot of people question that work, but it remains the staple diet of Egyptology. The people still use Kenneth Kitchen's dating system based on these five dynasties of the third intermediate period, which if you think about working backwards in time from the birth of Christ, is the period you get to before you get to the great period of Egyptian history, Ramesses II, etc. So by sh if you find that that, is, that period is too long, has been overextended, and you can reduce it by decades, perhaps centuries, making it shorter, then of course Ramesses II's dates come down in time, and that changes the whole relationship between the biblical story and the Egyptian story. When we're looking at the biblical story, one of the things that gave me first, that first attracted me to this as a, as a question, um, was the controversy concerning Jericho. Now Jericho, the biblical line was taken by Joshua, it was part of the conquest. Um, uh, 1950s uh, excavation claimed no, no, it was it was abandoned for hundreds of years before this, and it, it was it was there was no city there at this point, so this was entirely incorrect. But, but, the actual detail of what they discovered in that excavation entirely matched the biblical record. The walls had indeed fallen down flat. The city had indeed been destroyed by fire. The, the storehouses were full. Nothing was taken in terms of food or grain. It was all burnt. Every, every detail of the biblical record was there in the, uh, in the archaeology, but the archaeologists were completely dismissing it. Now, the evangelical community, some of them, looked at this and said, well, the problem here the problem here is clearly the Bible's right, and clearly the archaeologists have just got it wrong. And the, but the, 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 the exploration of, of what just getting it wrong meant was essentially, well, they've, they've, they've said that there should be pottery if it's of that age, and the pottery's not there, and they're, and they're dismissing this because of something that's not there, not something they've found, and it's just because it was a backwater, it was off the trade route. So they start to assemble a reinterpretation of archaeology to try and fit the Bible record. And this reinterpretation of archaeology doesn't satisfy the highest standards of archaeology and doesn't fit. So that looks off. But the, the other side is the biblical record is describing exactly what, what the archaeology showed. So there's this mismatch. There's these two stories, and they seem to have half a truth. And what you've done by harmonising the timeline, harmonising the chronology, is you've entirely resolved this contradiction. And this is what made the book for me so fascinating. Because what, 
I suppose you 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 found was that the pattern of events that you have recorded in the biblical record does fit up with a pattern of events recorded in the archaeology, but not at the time that's been advertised, not in the time that came from these these links between Ramesses and um, as if, as as the fatal Exodus and 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 Shishak as as Shoshank. So throwing those anchor points aside. You you've then gone in and looked for for other anchor points, something more reliable. Is is, is that is that the approach you you've brought here? Well, first of all, that was an excellent explanation. I mean, yes, that was very clearly demonstrated. The problem here is that you present something like that, where you have very clear archaeological evidence for a time in which that city was destroyed, matching the biblical narrative perfectly, with the, with the walls falling down, the grain stores being burnt, etc and the place being abandoned for over six centuries. Okay, so when you then go through that six centuries of abandonment, you find that Ramesses II is sitting there in the middle of the period when there was no city there. So Joshua, after Moses, 40 years after Moses, destroyed that city, but there was no city to destroy. Now, wouldn't you think that would set the alarm bells ringing with the scholars saying, well, hang on a minute, we must have our timeline wrong, surely? No, no, no. What they end up doing then is making all these changes in there in the actual archaeological evidence and in the historical record and reinterpreting it to try and find a way to explain that. So what they do is they say, well, Joshua never existed, that Jericho was not destroyed by the Israelites, that they passed there hundreds of years later, this ruin, and somehow it became part of the story. Well, that's not what the Bible's telling us at all. So they then extend the thing backwards and say, well, if Joshua never destroyed Jericho, then surely Moses was never in Egypt and neither were the Israelites. So the whole thing becomes a fashion myth based on nothing. There's no historical evidence for it whatsoever and no archaeological evidence. And all I did was say, well, hang on a minute, this third intermediate period that Kenneth Kitchener you know, devised, as it were, was too long. So we'll shorten the Egyptian chronology, we'll lower the dates coming down, and then we end up with Jericho being destroyed exactly at the time, 1406 for the conquest, in the Egyptian dating scheme. So you shorten Egyptian dating scheme and you find that the conquest of Jericho takes place exactly when the Bible says it did. And at that point, you start to see the archaeological evidence and the written record from, from Scripture tying up. So the, the, how... How much of a tie-up did you find? I mean, you just explain some of the things that you then you then found um, correlations between between the, the 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 written record and what's in the ground. Okay, well, this was the interesting thing because people the scholars have sort of admitted that was there were similarities between this this conquest that is described in the Bible and the destruction of the Middle Bronze Age cities in, in the Holy Land in Canaan. But and then if you go before that to the time of Joseph arriving in Egypt and the and the Israelites turning up with Jacob, that's all in the ground there at this place called Avaris, which is underneath the city of Ramses mentioned in Exodus. So you see, there's a city below Exodus, uh, below the city of Exodus, uh, according to the conventional dating scheme, and this is the real city where the Israelites were living, and they became enslaved, and we see that in the archaeology, and then we see them completely disappear from the site. There's a, a huge plague. There's, there's people thrown into pits into the ground willy-nilly. And then the entire population of Semites disappear. They leave. 
uh, and the, the city is abandoned. That describes the Exodus to me perfectly. But before that, we have this this figure, Joseph, there is very powerful um, member of the, the, the government of, of Egypt under Pharaoh. He's actually a vizier, a very powerful man. And and that is reflected in the stories, the archaeology we find and the history we find at the end of the 12th dynasty in Egypt, which is the, the period of the Middle Bronze Age, Middle Bronze 2A. So all that fits. But then the scholar said, well, yeah, that all seems to work quite well. But David, you can't do that all the way through history because it doesn't work for the period after the Exodus and the conquest. So my latest books are all about how it really does fit. Uh, and so I'm going through the process of writing about the judges period in terms of the biblical story and then the united monarchy of Saul, David and Solomon. And I'm finding links all the way through that period that match the archaeology. So, for instance, let me give you an example. The, 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 the sacred place called Shiloh, where the ark was kept in the hill country, and that was established early on after the conquest. Well, that place was built towards the end of the Middle Bronze Age, which is when I've got the conquest taking place. But in the conventional dating scheme, it's built hundreds of years before the conquest, and therefore it cannot be the place that the Israelites built. It must be some Canaanite establishment from a previous period that they simply reoccupied. Well, I don't buy that. You know, the Israelites wouldn't have done that. They would have established a, on a virgin site their sacred place. They wouldn't have gone and borrowed some Canaanite place. So these are the sorts of things that come to light when you have the revised dating scheme and which do not work in the conventional dating scheme. One of the very interesting things about the biblical record is, is the possession of Egypt, because Egypt's had hegemonic power for a lot of the time. The, the Levant, Israel, Palestine, the, the, the Lebanon, all of these areas, what makes them geopolitically so interesting over centuries is the, the land between empires that's always been a series of buffer states. And as you get um, the major powers falling away, the buffer states can gain independence. And as the, as the major powers uh, come back into a dominant position, then the buffer states start to get pressured and squeezed. And, and you see this narrative through the biblical record. Now, the thing that, one of the other problems with the idea that Ramesses is the, is, is the pharaoh of the Exodus, is during the conquest, it, the, the children of Israel come to come to Canaan and they go through the conquest and there's, there's not a mention of an Egyptian anywhere. It's like the Egyptian the empire, the Egyptian military force, the Egyptian might has been has been temporarily wiped in the face of the map. Now of course the biblical explanation is 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 the is the Red Sea crossing and the the where and you had a a situation where Egypt was devastated. But of course, Ramesses is the opposite. Ramesses was a, a high point in, in, in Egyptian might. So again, this didn't tie up. When you're looking at the corrected, um, when you're looking at the corrected timeline, uh, did, did that get resolved? Did you find a point where Egyptian might and power and military the ability to project military control fell away, presumably rapidly, um, and 
at the point of, of the exodus? And does that give a, a correct and a new idea as to who the pharaoh of the exodus actually was? Well, there you go. You see, you really put the, the finger on the point because the exodus could only have taken place in a time when Egypt was down on its knees. Not when it's powerful and with a mighty army and controlling the whole region. That doesn't make any sense at all. So these 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 graves we found, these pits in the ground, uh, this devastating plague that took place at the end of the Middle Bronze 2A, which is when this city of Avaris is abandoned, and and these Semites, these if we can call them Israelites now, I don't know, but these Semites suddenly disappear from the site and the place is abandoned. We don't know for how long, maybe five years, ten years. But then what happens is Egypt's invaded by some, a group of people called the Hyksos, who, who come in as a marauding horde from Canaan, and they take over the delta. And now that Egypt is powerless, the kings retreat down south to Luxor, down to Thebes, and they're unable to control the Levant, the area that they controlled previously in the Middle Kingdom. So this is a really weak point in Egyptian control of the region. And that gives Joshua the opportunity to go and destroy the cities in Canaan because there's no Egyptians there to, to stop them, to prevent them. So it matches it perfectly in that respect. And we find that in the end of the Middle Bronze Age, we find that all the major cities, including Jericho and Ai and various other ones, Lachish and others and Hatsor, they're all destroyed or abandoned at this period in time. It's, it's across the board, across the whole region, which again fits the whole Joshua Conquest narrative. So it fits there perfectly. And then we have a period where Egypt has no interest in what's going on for uh, 150 years or so. And then they suddenly, with the beginning of the new kingdom, when the Hyksos are expelled out of Egypt, they start to, make an, to take an interest again. Well, they're not interested in the hill country where the Israelite tribes are. They're interested in the coastal plain and going up north to the Mesopotamian area to, to fight against the Mitanni and the, and, the, and, the, and the people up in the Mesopotamian region. So they're not interested in what's going on in the hill country. As far as they're concerned, that's just a bunch of tribes. Uh, and of course, that's the period of the judges in, in uh, biblical history. So the only real time that we start to see the interconnection again between Egypt and Israel is when we get to the United Monarchy period, when we get to King David and, and also to King Solomon, because Solomon married an Egyptian princess. As you know, that's what the narrative tells us. And of course, we have another weak point there because we have the Amarna period where Akhenaten, this solar worshipping uh, pharaoh, abandons all the northern empire that's been built up in the 18th dynasty along the coastal plain, doesn't help the city dwellers there and the, the city uh, rulers. And that's the time when we get the Hebrew revolt where the Israelites overthrow the Philistine lords in the lowlands, in their cities. And that is the birth of the United Monarchy period when Saul takes becomes king and is followed by David and then Solomon. That's all happened because Akhenaten is not supporting the city uh, rulers in the local uh, region of southern Palestine, who we call the Philistines. Does that take you to uh, a, a new candidate for Pharaoh of the Exodus? Oh, yes. Okay, yes. So it's not Ramesses II. It's no big pharaoh. It can't be with the evangelical school, somebody, one of the pharaohs in the middle of the 18th dynasty, because they're very powerful too, which is the conventional date of 1446 for the Exodus. But if you have a revised chronology, you can go much further back in time by removing 
the centuries that were added in by scholars in the third intermediate period. So we're now at the end of the 13th dynasty. And at the end of the 13th dynasty, there's a, there's a pharaoh nobody's ever heard of called Dudimos. And according to Manetho, the great historian of ancient Egyptian history, in his time, God smote the Egyptians. And God is in the singular. So he describes something happening terrible to Egypt in the reign of this Dudimos, who he calls Tutimaeus because he's, he's writing in Greek for the Ptolemaic pharaohs. So he calls him Tutimaeus, but we're pretty sure that means Dudimos, the king of the, towards the end of the 13th dynasty. And he says, God smote the Egyptians. And then afterwards, sometime later, these marauding hordes of Pyxos come in and take over Egypt. So Egypt is then down on its knees for a century and a half. Now, so this Dudimos seems to be the character at the time that the Exodus took place. He would be the new chronologist's version of the Pharaoh of the Exodus, not Ramesses. Some of the artifacts that you, you, you present in the test of time are, are very striking. And the, the one on the cover is, is the one on the cover is a, a statue, a, a reconstruction of a statue, but a statue which has been found uh, of um, well, of a statue that's been found in in the city that's built under underneath the city of Ramesses, the city where um, the uh, the Semites, the Israelites, uh, were living and where they left rapidly. Um, could you tell us? Could you tell us a little bit about that particular statue, what was found, <clears throat> and what you concluded from it? Yeah, this is perhaps one of the most sensational aspects of revising the dating scheme. Because if we take the Dudimos character as the Pharaoh of the Exodus, and at the end of the 13th dynasty, and we look back 215 years, which is when uh, Jacob arrives in Egypt with his tribe of 70-odd people. Uh, and, and according to uh, many sources, the period of that sojourn, as we call it, is 215 years. At that time, we've got a Pharaoh in Egypt called Amenemhat III, and he is a major pharaoh of the 12th dynasty, in whose time there was a major famine. <clears throat> so it seems to fit the story of Jacob coming into to Egypt at the time of a great famine. Um, but of course, before Jacob arrived, we have Joseph being brought in as a slave to, to Egypt. And uh, he rises uh, through the ranks to become a, the really important vizier, the second in, in command of the country, as it were, for pharaoh. Uh, and we ex would expect, therefore, that this city of Avaris, which lies beneath Ramesses' city, Ramesses, that that city would have a beginning. And we can see that in the archaeology. We see um, probably a dozen, maybe 15 houses being built. That's about enough for about 70 people arriving in the time of Jacob. But we also see what we call a Syrian Mittelsal house, which is the type of house that was built up in northern Syria, which is where Jacob came from. So it's unique to Egypt to find this particular house there at the beginning of the settlement, surrounded by these other smaller houses. Now, when the, the person who lived in that house died, it was demolished. And let's just call that Jacob's house for the moment, because, you know, Jacob was then taken and buried in Machpelah Cave in Canaan. He was taken to be buried with the ancestors. And then on top of this demolished building, there was a large Egyptian palace constructed. But the owner of the palace was not Egyptian. He was a Semite. He was a Semitic person. And we know this because of the accoutrements in the graveyard right next to the, the, the palace itself. So although it was designed to be Egyptian palace, the resident of it was a foreigner. 
and one particular tomb was found in the cemetery that was a pyramid tomb. Now that's very, very unusual because at this period of time, only pharaohs and princesses or queens were given pyramid tombs, not normal people, not, not even high officials. They were not given pyramids. This guy that was buried in that uh, tomb behind the palace had a pyramid given to him. That's a very high honor. And on front, in the front of the pyramid was a chapel built attached to it. And when they excavated, when the Austrians excavated this pyramid tomb, they found the broken fragments of a statue in this chapel. Now, this was a colossal statue. It was a seated statue. And if you stood next to it, it would be taller than you, even though it was seated. So it's about twice life size. And they pieced together the bits of the statue that remained from this, this fragmented, smashed up statue. And they discovered that his skin color was, was pale yellow. He had bright red hair, flame red hair, and he wore a multicolored coat. Now, that tells me that A, he's a foreigner. He's not an Egyptian with red hair and pale skin. But he's also got a multicolored coat, a coat of many colors. And that was astonishing to me. And then when they excavated into the burial chamber of the pyramid, they didn't find a body. They didn't find a coffin. They didn't find any gold. They didn't find any pottery. They didn't find anything that would be normally associated with a high-ranking burial. And that, again, reflects the story of Joseph, where we're on his deathbed, at the end of the book of Genesis, he asked the brethren surrounding him, Please, when you leave Egypt, when you depart for the Holy Land, the promised land, promised to Abraham, take my body with you. So they, they removed the body from the, 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 the burial. Now, the thing is, it, some people say, oh, but it's just you know, robbery. It's a, it's, a, it's a tomb robbery. But they don't take the bones. If you, a tomb robber doesn't take the bones. That's no intrinsic value in bones. So that doesn't make any sense at all. Why was the statue smashed? Well, after the Israelites had left, along with Joseph's body, the Egyptians come to the site and they say, this is the guy, this guy Joseph is the guy with this multicolored statue, multicolored coated statue. He's the guy that brought these people to Egypt. And look what they did to us. So they then smash it to pieces. It's the Egyptians who do the damage. The Israelites couldn't have taken this big heavy statue with them. They left it behind. So the only thing that the, the Egyptians could do was wreak revenge on the statue, the image of the man who brought these dreadful people to Egypt and caused these terrible plagues with their God. So again, it fits the story remarkably well. Looking for other things that fit the story, um, the, the nature of the Egyptian, uh, we've, we've, talked, we've talked about the, the Egyptians being very much on the back foot for 150 years, but the, the nature of, of the Egyptian uh, pharaohs that followed this point, followed their uh, dunamis, um, what they believed, the, uh, other, other signs of, if you like, a major cultural shock to the entire system, because because the the their their the rulers, the the and and their belief system, their gods were the rulers. You know, so the whole thing was very tightly bound together. And it suffered this catastrophic defeat. Did you see in the pharaohs that followed Dudimos, did you see signs of cultural collapse or uncertainty? Did you, did, was this also visible? That's a more difficult question to answer, really, because you have this 150 years or so when the Hyksos are dominating the country and they've come from the north. Uh, they're also merchant uh, rulers because they deal with the Mediterranean area as well. So they're, 
Their, their trading network was very powerful. And the poor old native Egyptian pharaohs were stuck down in the south uh, at Thebes and they couldn't really do much. So we have this long period of time. But they, of course, they continue to worship their gods as they did before. So when we get to the expulsion of the Hyksos, when 18th dynasty starts up and you get the beginning of the new kingdom, then you get a, a very militaristic type of uh, pharaoh. So they're coming to conquer. Now, they've realized that they cannot go through what they've just gone through, which is to have the Hyksos ruling their, their country and despoiling it, probably plundering the pyramids and taking all the gold out of them, etc., etc. So they say, right, we're going to have a militaristic uh, time, time now. So the pharaohs start to campaign in the region. As I say, avoiding the hill country because there's nothing in there of interest to them. They're along the coastal plain and up to the north. And you get famous pharaohs like Thutmose III, the great Napoleon of ancient Egypt, having something like 20-odd campaigns up there in, in his rule, in his, his time. So, and, and that, of course, builds up the wealth of Egypt again because they now re-establish uh, uh, hegemony over the north. However, this is the judges' period in Israelite history, and they're not doing anything. They're, they're having the odd uh, oppression by Philistines and, and others from Moab, etc. But they're just a, a, a series of tribes with prophets at this point. They're not a unified kingdom, as a sense. So they're not of consequence for the Egyptians. Their job is to go and retake the cities like Megiddo and Hatsor and places like that up in the north which at this time do not, are not in the control of these Israelite tribes uh, living in the hill country. So it, it becomes very militaristic. And their, their main gods are gods like Amun uh, and, and, uh, and, and the warrior gods. So, you know, you, you've got these, these, this dependency on the power of Pharaoh. And that then becomes, collapses when we get to the Amarna period, because then we have this monotheist coming along called Akhenaten who is not now the first monotheist, because Moses was a monotheist way before him in this revised dating scheme. And he then goes for one god, and then he dismisses Amun worship and the other deities, and he says they're no longer to be worshipped. And there's a, there's a sort of mini-civil war in Egypt going on between the, the cult of Amun and the, and the Artanists and his own little city that he's, he's founded called Architaten in Middle Egypt. And he there's correspondence coming from from the north, from all the city-state rulers saying, please help us out because we're being attacked by these people called the Habiru, which is basically the equivalent word for the word Hebrew or Ibrim in the Bible. And these city lords are saying, come and send us archers, send us soldiers, send us uh, Egyptian people to defend us from the attacks from the hills of these people living in the hills called the Habiru. Well, that is the time of the Hebrew revolt when Saul and Jonathan overthrow the Philistine cities. And David, later on, then captures these Philistine cities. So it's the very spot where we get another weak pharaoh who, in whose time he ignores all the problems of the north and he doesn't go out to help them. He doesn't send the Egyptian army. And that is why we have a window of opportunity for the Israelites suddenly to become a kingdom. No longer a tribal network, but now a, a kingdom with a monarchy because they've managed to overthrow the oppression of the Philistines living down on the plains in their cities because Akhenaten never came to help them. So we end up with this power base now established uh, in, in the hill country and in further afield now that David has expanded the kingdom. And you have the 90th dynasty coming 
on board uh, in Egypt, and they're thinking, oh, hang on a minute, we've got a new situation now in the north. We've now got a very powerful ruler in the, in the form of David and his successor Solomon. We'd better do business with them because we can't, we can't go out and fight these guys because they're too powerful now. They've dominated the region. So what do they do? They have a marriage alliance. They agree that uh, the, the daughter of Ramesses II should marry King Solomon. And she is the princess who becomes the principal queen of Solomon in his early years before the Queen of Sheba turns up. So uh, we have an explanation for all that. We even have evidence that Ramesses II destroyed the city of Geza, wiped it out, killed all the people there. A very rare thing that Egypt the Egyptians would do that. They don't do that very often. But this time, he did actually do that. We have the bodies of the people slain in the city, and the city was burnt. And lo and behold, the pharaoh whose daughter married Solomon gave Geza to Solomon as a dowry. So there's your perfect match again. Remarkable. So I'd like just to go um, back a stage now. Another one of the things which has caused a great deal of inaccurate or certainly questionable narrative has been the whole wandering 40 years in the desert, right? Because we, the exodus happened, everybody left, we've got archaeological evidence for that, but they disappear off into the, the wilderness, the wilderness of sin. And 40 years is a long time to wander anywhere. I mean, you think, you know, just out of sheer randomness, you would bump into something that looked like civilization in less than 40 years. Um, and a lot of the, even the sort of evangelical narratives have, have them kind of wandering around Sinai for 40 years. And Sinai is not that big. Um, and then you've got the question over where was the site of crossing the Red Sea. Um, this is an area that's also been very hotly contested, in, in, including in, in some people who claim to have found the site. And um, uh, I don't know if you, if, if you rate their, their claims or not. Is that, a, is that an area that you've been studying? Have you got into those sorts of questions as well? Yes, and, and obviously you have to respond to these guys who were proclaiming that uh, the whole episode took place in Saudi Arabia, that uh, you know Mount Sinai and the, and the tablets was uh, Jebel al-Laws in Saudi Arabia and not in Sinai Peninsula. So yes, you have to look at this sort of stuff. And there's so much evidence that shows that what we really are dealing with is a crossing of the Reed Sea rather than the Red Sea, Yam Suf, on the border of Egypt. And in those days, the border of Egypt was pretty much where the Suez Canal is today. Sinai wasn't really part of Egypt. It was a place they've sent expeditions to mine turquoise and copper, but they never actually proclaimed to have owned it at all. They sent armies out there with workmen, mostly Semites from Avaris, by the way. They were the people who were sent out there to go and mine this turquoise, etc. Um, so you have to think of the border of Egypt being where the Suez Canal is today. And in that spot, in ancient times, there was a large lake called Bala Lake, which was surrounded by reeds. And that is the Yam Suf mentioned in the biblical text. It's called Pachuf in the Egyptian text. And uh, an Egyptian Ch becomes Semitic S, so it becomes Pasuf. And that means the reeds, the same as Yam Suf, the sea of reeds. So uh, the word Yam in, in the Hebrew doesn't just mean a large sea. It can also mean a lake as well. So, um, you know, you have the Dead Sea, for instance, as Yam. And so is the Sea of Galilee. We call it the Sea of Galilee. It's actually only a lake. 
So yam just means a large body of water. So we have we have that situation going on. Now, uh, going into Sinai, we can actually find the toponyms mentioned on the route, which is mentioned in the, in the route of march of the Israelites down to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb. And, and they match. We, we have the names that which match on that. One of the places that matches particularly is a place called Dofka in the Bible, one of the places Moses records as them staying at, and that's called Dumofkat in Egyptian. It means the mountain of turquoise. And there, all over the caves uh, uh, in there of the mines of the turquoise mines is a new form of writing. It's called Proto-Sinaitic. And it basically, it's Egyptian hieroglyphs, but they don't read Egyptian. You can't read it as Egyptian text. What it is, is some clever person has used those Egyptian hieroglyphs and then thought of the word that they represent. So, for instance, um, Aleph is the, is the head of a bull so, or an ox. So that, that becomes a letter A in, our, in, in their alphabet. They're inventing an alphabet here. Bait is the plan of a house, Egyptian plan of a house. That's the word bait becomes the letter B. So they create an alphabet, the very first alphabet in the world. They create it. Some Semite does this there. And we can now read those inscriptions in Sinai, and they appear to be the words of Moses. They refer to manna and how you should eat manna and how you should follow the Father in the way that you eat manna, because there's special rules about that. It also refers to bringing these, these, these people out of Egypt. They, they call it a garden, an oppressed garden, and the depression being the slavery period. So there are texts in Sinai which seem to be the work of Moses, and, and, and they seem to be in Hebrew. So we, we can be absolutely sure, I think, that these events took place in Sinai. But your, your question about 40 years is interesting because they didn't wander for 40 years. They settled at a place called Kadesh Barnea. So they maybe spent two or three years wandering and then they settled down in a place called Kadesh Barnea. And that, according to tradition and, and all the research that's been done recently, is where we find Petra today, the Rose Red City. But before the Nabataeans built Petra, it was the place that's called, it was actually called the Valley of Moses. Uh, and, and there's the spring there, which fed water to the population. So that seems to be the place they stayed for many, many years, building up their, their forces, preparing to go into the promised land to conquer it. And, and that may have taken 35 to 40 years before they invaded the promised land. So they weren't wandering all around Arabia. Uh, they were basically settled in this desert area to the east of the Araba, in this very, very um, part of Seir, this very mountainous part of Seir, but with a life-giving spring, which would have provided the water for them to survive. Hopping around a little bit here uh, between yeah. subject matters, but ju just um, to to go back to um, to Joseph. Uh, you talked about water sources. Now, um, here's what I understand to be the case. And I want you to tell me if I'm wrong, because this is all about things that are that you believe and that just ain't so. So there is a canal um, which is essentially connected to the Nile system, and it's called um, Canal Yusuf, Canal Joseph. And then it <clears throat> leads to an area which, before irrigation, would have been desert. 
but is a huge now sort of roughly triangular green area visible quite clearly on um, uh, on satellite images of Egypt. And the suggestion is that the canal is in fact a canal built by Joseph. This was part of the works in preparation for the famine. This is part of the works to better utilise the water source from the Nile and to irrigate and generate grain from a greater area. Is there anything in that? Is that, is that correct? Is that an error? No, this is much more than that, actually. Um, as I said earlier on, the pharaoh of Joseph's time is called Amenemhat III, and he actually built his pyramid right next to this canal. So he was obviously very keen on this canal, and it does feed what they call the Fayum Basin from the main Nile Valley, but it wasn't necessarily simply to provide a larger area for growth of, of crops. It's because the cause of the famine was something that we don't really realize. The reason why they had a famine in Egypt is because they had really high Niles for a period of, of seven to ten years. Now, this what it means by that is that the, normally the rains fall in Ethiopia in the spring and it washes down the Blue Nile and it pits up silt. And normally that's beneficial because it comes down to the White Nile and it flows north to, into Egypt and this annual flood deposits nice rich silt on the ground and washes out the salt and it's beneficial to the land of Egypt. Well, in this particular period, the rains were so heavy uh, in Ethiopia that huge amounts, four times the amount of water that normally comes into the Nile Valley, came into the Nile Valley at this period, year after year after year. The result of which was that the people couldn't plant the crops because the water stayed in the Nile Valley much, much longer than normal. It didn't dissipate because there was four times the amount of it. The result of which was they couldn't grow crops for, for years and years because the water the, the fields were waterlogged. The cattle had been drowned. The villages on their, on their little mounds in the valley would have been washed away. So the, the solution that Joseph came up with was to build a canal which diverted 50% of that water into the Fayum Basin to create a huge lake and therefore saving the rest of Egypt from being flooded because now we've reduced the levels back to acceptable levels that they could cope with, especially in the Delta. So it meant that they could continue to grow their crops, even though the waters were too high uh, prior to that, because he solved the situation. So he, he's obviously a brilliant man with brilliant ideas and an excellent engineer, and he constructed this Bach Yosef, the waterway of Joseph, to divert 50% of the water away from the Nile Valley. And going a bit further back, we've, we've talked about the errors in the timeline and the, how crucial they are. Now, there are other controversies over timelines, um, and this is between different translations of the Bible. So you've got the, the Septuagint, the LXX version, um, which predates uh, Christ, and then you've got the Masoretic text, which was the Jewish text of the Old Testament, but that came after Christ. And there are significant differences in the timelines that they quote to the tune of several hundred years. It, it, does, does that um, also affect the uh, obtaining a correct pattern fit between the archaeology and the written record? That's a very interesting question. Yes, let's think about these sources. The oldest source that we're aware of is the Samaritan text, the Samaritan Pentateuch, 
but of course, a, a lot of uh, Israelites in, in the past history dismiss the Samaritan text because they think it's all fakery. Um, but of course, the Samaritans live, live on Mount Gerizim near Shechem. And, and there is a, something to be said for the fact that their, their text is actually more original than any other one. Then you have the Septuagint, the Greek version, which was written by 70-odd um, Jewish scribes, scholars, for the Ptolemies living in Alexandria, the pharaohs there who built the, the Alexandrian library. They wanted to have the history of all the different nations, so they commissioned 70 rabbis to, to, to write the story of the Pentateuch, the Old, the Old Testament. In fact, not just the Torah, but the whole thing, the Tanakh, the entire Old Testament. So that's the second source. Then you have the Masoretic text, which is actually much, much later in time because the earliest copies of that are, you know, into the AD period. And they didn't, the Masorets didn't start to put the, the, the vocalization, the pointing onto the script until that time. So that is the third source, really, and it's the latest of the three sources. And there are discrepancies, as you pointed out, especially in the book of Genesis. There's a lot of discrepancies there. And, of course, the other major discrepancy is the one we mentioned earlier on which is, is this idea that the, the, the sojourn in Egypt of the Israelites was 480 years, which is what you'll read in the Masoretic text. But all the other sources say, no, no, no. The 480 years starts with Abraham's covenant when he's living in Canaan with God. And so there's 215 years before Jacob arrives in, in, in Egypt, and there's 215 years when, Joseph, when Moses takes Israelites out of Egypt. That's the 430 years, sorry, 430, not 480. 480 is from the uh, time of King Solomon's temple back to the Exodus. 430 is the time period we have in the Masoretic text for the sojourn itself in Egypt. Whereas the other, other sources do not have 430 years. They have the, the 215 years in two slices, two periods. So yes, it can affect the way you reconstruct the history. I would accept a 215 year period from Jacob to Moses not 430 years. That's too much for me. And the, the generations uh, that you have recorded in that period of the sojourn cannot possibly cover a whole 430-year period. It's too much too much. This um, timeline and getting the timeline correct, um, fair to say that this is absolutely fundamental in understanding ancient history, understanding b biblical history, and, and, and piecing together um, a, a, a coherent view of, 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 of is essentially what predates the sort of modern history of people like Josephus and some of the Roman authors and what have you. So you get beyond that, you're into areas where the sources are fewer, the, the 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 distances are greater, the reliance on the archaeology is greater. And if if that chronology, if that timeline is out, then you have only confusion. And if you can get that corrected, then all of a sudden it starts informing uh, your understanding of 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 where we all came from, ultimately, because the Middle East is is a source for civilization. Um, it, it, am I overstating the importance of getting this correct? No, you're not at all. Um, I think that the, one of the most difficult things people don't really understand about the timeline is that when you get to the birth of Christ, going backwards in time, we have a completely different dating system after that. 
because we, we date our, our you know what, what are we on now we're in 2023 since the birth of christ even though the birth of christ wasn't on on year one actually we think pretty much certain it was year 4 bc maybe even 6 bc when he was born but that's another issue but then when we get to that marker point that zero point between the ad and the bc we're going backwards in time and we have nothing to 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 we don't have these fixed dates that we have in our, our in our system that we have today that we use because they relied on something else they relied on something called regnal dating because they didn't know christ was going to get born so they couldn't possibly know that ramesses the second came to the throne in 1279 bc that's without that would be nonsense that would be the future as far as ramesses the second is concerned so they don't they didn't date bc as it were and that's something that scholars have, have made up they've done that they've worked it all out for themselves and that's right as we started with our conversation today they use the bible to date certain things like shoshank the first the founder of the 22nd dynasty is dated to year five of rehoboam which according to the bible is 925 bc so he's locked in there smack on that one and then you work backwards to Ramesses II, you get 1279 BC for the beginning of his reign. It's all calculated. So if there's the link between Shoshenk and Shishak is not, is not real, it, it doesn't actually it doesn't actually match the data between the Egyptian pharaoh and the, and the biblical pharaoh, then your, your, your anchor points have all disappeared. And then you have to rework it again. So if the third intermediate period has to be shortened by several centuries, then Ramesses II's dates come down by several centuries too. So it changes everything. So you've got to get those dates right. And, the, and the, the way you find out if those dates are right is if what you look in the archaeology and what you look in the ancient text, and I will include the biblical text in that reference, then start to make sense. But if they don't make sense, you've got to say, well, why don't they make sense? Maybe we've got it wrong. Maybe the, the destruction of Jericho that took place in the Middle Bronze Age really is the one that Joshua destroyed not the invisible Jericho that didn't exist when Joshua came in soon after the time of Ramesses II. You've got to start looking at the evidence and, and seeing how it fits together with a different dating scheme. And what you're describing here is a, is a degree of humility in, saying, in, in first saying we could be wrong. Now, this is, this is not necessarily humanity's strong suit. Um, and you've gone about stirring up um, controversy over this and coming up with different different answers and different explanations and challenging the establishment, challenging um, the the dogma of of your profession. We, could we just finish this interview today with just this, discussing a little bit about what that's been like to do? What sort of reaction have you had? How much support? How much, how much hostility? Has it been welcomed? Has it has there been interest? Has there been avoidance? What what sort of reaction have you found? Well, that was the thing when I, when I put this together and I worked on this chronology in the from the late sixties through actually, and then I published the Test of Time in nineteen ninety four with uh, with the TV series Ferris and Kings. There was uproar, absolute uproar, especially from Kenneth Kitchen, who was um, I mean he's a decent fellow and he's a very brilliant scholar. But um, he was most miffed by the TV series. He didn't like it at all. And um, he's an evangelical Christian himself. So he then sent off a, a, a few letters to America to various scholars, colleagues over there 
basically saying that the whole thing was 98% rubbish, what I'd presented. And <clears throat> funnily enough, I ended up getting five copies of that letter sent back to me because it had spread around the world like wildfire to all these evangelical scholars and, and professors. So I, I actually ended up receiving five separate uh, copies of that email. Uh, well, it wasn't actually an email, it was a letter at the time. Um, and uh, so I got to read it, and it was funny what he was writing in there. Uh, and he basically said it was just somebody trying to, you know, to to raise their profile, to make money, and and all the rest of it. It wasn't it wasn't so much challenging the issues that I'd raised. It was all about attacking the personality, and that's what you find. And I was a bit naive because I thought, well, no, maybe people would would debate it and discuss it, and and you know, as we've been doing today, and and coming in with counter arguments and counterpoints. That's not the way it works, I'm afraid, within academia and the establishment. So we got very, very strong resistance from most areas of academe, apart from what I would call the younger scholars, the ones the ones who are PhD students who, you know, we were debating all this at University College London when I was there. And, and uh, you know, they were interested in it. And, and, and there are some... Uh, of those scholars now who have now reached the, the higher echelons of, of the scholarship in Egyptology who are much more open-minded and uh, they don't always agree with what I have to say but at least they will debate it and find it interesting um, and then we have um, the other side of things which is the evangelical lots now they are funnily enough you'd think they'd leap on this and, and get really excited about it but oh no not for them, no. They they must follow Kenneth Kitchen, who's the high priest of, of chronology, and he's, his dates are the ones they have to work with. And so they end up with, in, in a quagmire of, of trying to explain why Jericho's not there at the time of the mid-18th dynasty, etc. So you have those, that group there. So there's two sides, really. You, there's the evangelical side and there's the academic side. And then you have a third group, of course, which is the general public. And the general public seem to love it. I mean, they get excited by it because they're not encumbered by the chains and shackles of academia. They just see the logic of it. They see the evidence because as I try in my books, I try to show the evidence visually. So it, to them, it makes absolute sense. And they scratch their heads and say, well, why are the academics not taking this on board? And, and my only answer is continental drift theory. Look what happened to that. It took a, you know, a generation before that was accepted. I'll probably be buried in my grave before it's going to be accepted, if it ever is going to be accepted, to be honest. This is the, the issue, and it, it applies in physics, it applies in all sorts of the, quote, hard sciences too, that uh, the new idea only really gains traction when the adherents of the old idea die. Um, and it's the new generation that takes it forward. Uh, it is astonishing that the evangelicals have, have not seized on this. I, I find that quite gobsmacking and of course the other team and i have asked about this and they they seem utterly disinterested is of course jewish archaeologists i would have thought that the that they would be the, the jewish archaeologists and indeed the religious um part of jewish society would have seized on this with gusto but that doesn't seem to have happened either is that correct you're right, yes. I mean, they base their reputations on the existing chronology, you know, the existing timeline. So, it, but, you know, even somebody like Finkelstein, Israel Finkelstein, is that really the doyen of Israeli archaeology. Uh, I mean, you know, he's actually revised the archaeology of, of the Holy Land by about 90 years. He's, he's lowered it by 90 years. 
But he says, even though he says he's done that, he says, well, you can't change Egyptian chronology by more than 10 years maximum. So we're not interested in in a revision that's centuries different. You know, they, they say it's impossible to do it. But they they close their minds to the evidence and they don't really they don't really have a view of what that evidence is. They don't bother to read it. They don't bother to to look at what this, you know, what I'm presenting. Uh, and so you're stuck in this area where it's all about reputations and, and, and making sure their reputations aren't destroyed. They've spent their lifetimes writing books about it. And here I am trying to say, well, it was you got it completely wrong. And the same goes for the Greek archaeologists with the Greek Dark Age. Same sort of issue. You know, there's a 300-year Dark Age in Greece where nothing happened between the Trojan War and the time of Homer. Uh, and, and that's not in anything, any of the records of, of Greece. You don't find any mention of a Dark Age, but we have one. Why? Because they date their Bronze Age culture, their Heroic Age, via Egyptian dating. So you have the same issue in other civilizations around the ancient world, all based on the fact that Egyptian chronology is actually overextended. Yes. It's, um, I, I was interviewing um, a, a, a specialist in um, uh, organic chemistry who is critical of the whole issues relating to origin of life research. And, um, and he made this point as well, that he gets this sort of similar, uh, very hostile reaction. He says, I can understand the problem because these people have put an entire life's work into a particular effort, a particular worldview, and I'm coming along and saying, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's fundamentally flawed. So I, can, I can see how that would upset them. But of course, the search for truth should require, should require people to be able to face the truth, right? Should be should require people to be able to admit mistakes and and correct them and move forward. And of course, the fact that it doesn't, the fact that we as a as a uh, human beings are so bad at this, uh, must hold us back in ways we cannot imagine. How many sciences are mired in error and are not moving forward? How many opportunities for um, fantastic knowledge or scientific advancement are we missing because we're not able to say yeah we got, we got that wrong let's let's admit it and move on um so i think this is a a, prob a problem that's 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 intrinsic to the human condition um and that makes it all the more special to talk to someone who's willing to challenge us orthodoxy uh, David, it's been it's been a delight to talk to you today. I hope we can do it again soon. I'm, I know there's an awful lot more we could we could cover, uh, but we'll have to close at this point. But uh, until next time, thank you very much.